for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Hear the words of, a, of an old prayer um, by old saints of the past. O oh Christ, all your ways of mercy tend to and end in my delight. You do weep and sorrow and suffer that I might rejoice. For, for my joy, you have sent the Comforter. You've multiplied your promises. You've shown me my future happiness. Given me a living foundation. You are preparing joy for me. And you're preparing me for joy. I pray for joy. I wait for joy. I long for joy. Give me more than I can hold, desire, or think of. What a weighty beautiful prayer. These words captured by saints of the past, they, they capture the aim of what I'm trying to go for in the next four weeks. And so uh, I, I've been tasked with bringing a series uh, to the church here in the next four weeks. And so I'm sorry, but you're going to have to deal with me. It's what it is. <laughs> my, my hope in the coming weeks is that you see that the way that God has shaped the course of history and your own circumstances, hard as they may be, I'm, uh, I'm talking to people that have to stay home right now because of sickness. Uh, my hope is that you would see the way that God has shaped the course of history and your current circumstances for your delight. My hope is that's the case, that that is the case. And, and my hope is that you hunger for more of that delight. It, 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 let me back up just a little bit. My name is uh, Grant Rose. I've been here for two years as a student pastor. And so um, uh, uh, I have been serving uh, specifically in the roles of the student ministry. But more broadly, I've met with many of you face to face and just kind of heard what's going on in your life and, and what you do. And, and hearing testimonies of uh, just you walking faithfully with the Lord for much, much longer than I have many of you. And so I've had the privilege to be able to do that. And so when I'm asked to, to uh, bring a series of messages, I'm like, man, what do I say to these people that are uh, uh, more faithful disciples than me in a lot of ways? And so uh, I was drawn immediately. It made sense for me to go to First uh, Thessalonians. And so you, you can, while I'm talking, go ahead and go there uh, if you've got your Bible. First Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And let me tell you why that made sense. Um, because in First Thessalonians, you have uh, Paul writing to a church that he just got a report from. Uh, he, he just got a report from his brother Timothy, and Timothy came in, and Paul's really worried about this church, right? He knew they were enduring a lot of persecution, a lot of hard times, and he's like, man, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to hear about them. And Timothy comes back, and he goes, actually, they're killing it. Like, like the church in Thessalonica is, like, really good in the midst of a, a lot of uh, uh, challenges and uh, uh, persecution and all these things. And he gets this report and it's really encouraging. And so Paul spends the whole first part of First Thessalonians celebrating their faithfulness. 
And so in a lot of ways, that made sense, man. Like, I, I want to be able to celebrate, celebrate uh, you guys' faithfulness as a church. And, and if you're not connected to this church even now, like, get to know some of these people here. There's a lot to celebrate about just their faithfulness to Jesus. But then the second part of 1 Thessalonians Uh, Paul takes that celebration of their faithfulness and he presses into that and he gives them a couple challenges. And so I I felt like this was a a perfect place for me to start. And so as I go through kind of the second part of uh, 1 Thessalonians, I I run across this list of commands. And three in particular that just flew off the page at me and said, hey, this is where we need to go with this series. And so my, my time is short. Um, And if you know me, I'm a talker, so I'm going to skip like kind of the goofy story at the beginning of a sermon, and I'm just going to dive into it. Um, So this is where we're at. We have this list of commands and imperatives, but they're they're set up by a context that postures us to receive them. And so we're going to start at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. And and commands are are given to, to help us make the connection between who we are or or our being and what we do or are are doing. It's being and doing together. It's what commands are given to us. In the Bible, we clearly have two commandments, right? uh, Like the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's there's two different contexts within which commands come from God. Okay, And and Jesus even says to his disciples, "I, I have a new commandment that I give to you. Just as I have loved you, that's our being, right? Like that's who we are. I want you to now love each other. So that's doing. He gives us then a command, a task to do. It's a new commandment. And so we have to read these commandments that are coming up here. We have to read these imperatives in context of this new covenant that Jesus brings in. And so let's look at verse 9. I'm going to read it and then we'll just kind of walk through what I think are maybe some of the distinctions between uh, what, how uh, Old Testament commandments are and how New Testament commandments are. And then hopefully that gives us a good landing spot to be able to press on into what Paul's saying here. Starting in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build one another up, just as you are doing. So we have this as sort of the launching pad for where he's going to go and actually press in and challenge and give uh, these, uh, the, these imperatives to the church in Thessalonica. And, and so we want to ask the question, like, man, what, what, are, what is the relationship between, uh, like, these commandments or, or these imperatives that come in light of who Jesus is and maybe some commandments that came earlier in the Bible in the Old Covenant. I think there's a lot of similarities, okay? So both Old Testament and New Testament, both Old Covenant and New Covenant uh, commands come uh, with three different things. I think they, they both reckon with the reality of God's wrath, right? We see that in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. We'll get to that here in a little bit in the distinction of the New Covenant dealing with wrath. But, but, but the Old Testament also dealt with this reality that sin having come into this world and our own brokenness gets us in a point where God's righteousness and His holiness, He cannot tolerate that sin. And so, listen, we're going to be a church that talks about the wrath of God. Yeah. We're going to be a church that deals with the devastating reality of God's 
wrath. It is frightening, but it is such a good thing because we're not going to skirt the fact that God's wrath upholds His righteousness and His holiness. We're going to look at the Scriptures and the commands in the Old Testament, the commands in the New Testament. We're going to see those related in the fact that they're dealing with something really heavy in the weight of God's wrath, but they help us understand how it is that wrath is paid for and dealt with and satisfied. So they reckon with the reality of God's wrath. Both Old Covenant and New Covenant commands also address our view of authority. They address our view of authority. You can see that in verse 9 as well. Then brings up Lord Jesus Christ, right? Lord is an authoritative term. Old Testament and New Testament commands are given in view of our need to submit to our Creator. They have at their core the the pushing up against our sinful impulse to buck up against authority. And, and, And if you don't think that this impulse in us exists, you've been asleep or under a rock for the last year and a half. Right? Like, everybody's trying to figure out, okay, how is it that we actually navigate authority, and who do we put in authority, and how do we respond and react to authority? What's their role in all these things? We have in us an impulse to buck up against authority. New Testament and Old Testament commands say there is something authoritative that, that tells us who we are, but also how we ought to live in these times. Complete autonomy doesn't work when sin infects our thinking. We need some authority to step in and tell us the best way for us to live. Old Testament and New Testament commands assume our insufficiency, but when we're talking about authority, they also assume God's sufficiency to be able to tell us how we ought to live. And so, uh, New Covenant and Old Covenant commands reckon with the reality of God's wrath. They address our view of authority. And third, they both speak into how we should live in the here and now. They are imperatives. They are intensely practical. Because of God's righteousness in relation to His wrath and His authority in relation to His goodness and power, there, there should be a deep connection between who He is and how we live. This is what we call obedience, right? This is what we call obedience. And so commands actually step in and tell us how we ought to live in the here and now. But there is something distinct, okay? So that's dealing with the similarities of, uh, of the, the Old Covenant and New Covenant commands. But when we come up to a passage like this, where he's going to give us all these imperatives, we need to read them in light of the differences. New Testament commands are given in light of a whole new reality, Like the incarnation of Jesus, that's like Him coming in the flesh, walking the same earth that we walked, it dramatically changes the playing field. It it changes it historically. Look at verse 9. This is what Paul's saying when he says, God has not destined us for wrath. Like the course of history changed, and our destiny changed when Jesus came on the scene. For God has not destined us for wrath. This is God's plan. There will be more on that later. It, it, it changes the playing field cosmologically. Like how all of nature even works and exists. 
Like, like before Jesus comes on the scene, there wasn't a time where nature responded to the voice of a human. Like, seas were calmed. Like, sick people, lame people got up. Blind people could see. Like, it's not how nature works. Dead people came to life. It changed the whole playing field. We have to read commandments in light of that reality. So historically, like, cosmologically, naturally, however you want to put it, it's a whole new reality. But also the reality that our life is not our own. Look with me, verse 10. He, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So we have to read these commandments in light of the reality that our life is not our own. We owe it all to Christ. He takes every failure on himself, and he gets all the credit for all of our successes. Any faithfulness we have to these commands or imperatives that are coming up, we owe it all to Christ, that we might live with him. And the last thing, the last difference that I think is a strong New Testament, New Covenant command distinctive is that it's uniquely corporate. Look with me, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And don't get it twisted. There's a very, very corporate, even theological, like, uh, uh, way that everything worked in Israel and in the Old Covenant, right? Like, they were doing things together. It was God's people. Everything was defined by God's people in a lot of those ways. But the New Testament sees us as priests. It sees us as the ones encouraging and building one another up. We, we respond to these things. We respond to these imperatives together. God still has the authority but it's Him indwelling us through the Spirit that we call each other to obedience to these commands. Right? Like this is, this is a really distinct way that we ought to receive calls to action and commands in light of the gospel of Jesus and the Spirit indwelling each of our lives. And so let's dig into these things. I didn't bring my water up, so hold on. Buckle up. That was all intro, all right? <laughs> With this new covenant reality in mind, we get these 16 commands, okay? The first two deal with leadership. We ask you, brothers, this is verse 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Okay, that's the first one. The second one, also dealing with leadership. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The next one deals with fellowship. Be at peace among yourselves. The, the next six deal with ministry and how we ought to live and operate. I've already been encouraged, I told you, with how we've done this as a church for families like Mike Zimmerman's. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. The next three deal with our attitude. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then the last four deal with 
our disposition. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now these are powerful ways for him to get towards the close of his letter. And if you were sitting in that room hearing as somebody would read this letter out, you would probably feel stirred up in you, call to action, and actually jump in on here. But there's three that stood out. And I hope you notice them. There's three commands that stood out. And by virtue of the title of this series, I bet you can figure it out, right? Verse 16, rejoice always. 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's an extremely powerful qualifier. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I I think that that qualifier actually goes with the previous three commands. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. And so I think we need to ask three questions about these three. Man, I'm a good Baptist. We're just working off of threes right here. All right. Three, Three questions. One, what is the relationship between these three commands? Two, in what sense is it the will of God? And three, how on earth is this even possible? And we'll get there. Question number one. What is the relationship between these three? Well, the most obvious we already hit on. Like, it's linked with a really, really powerful qualifier. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There's also a link here in that all three of these commands have a double emphasis. What do you mean by that? I'm glad you asked. All right. Rejoice, it means like be doing this, right? Like do this, rejoice, be doing this. It's continuous. But then there's a double emphasis added on it, right? Always pray, be doing this, do that continuously, pray without ceasing. Give thanks, do that, like give thanks right now in all circumstances. Right? These three both carry a double emphasis. And it's really, really powerful. Right? The next reason that I think these three are linked is that uh, both rejoicing or joy, uh, praying or prayer and giving thanks are repeated like incessantly throughout the New Testament. In the New Testament, like that word rejoice shows up 74 times. I wish I could hit it like on a lot of these, but Philippians 4.4 is a good one. You can write that down. Go check it out later, right? Prayer, 85 times in the New Testament alone. Ephesians 8.16 is a good place to go for that. And give thanks, especially with this uh, context of in all circumstances. Shows up all the time in the New Testament, right? Romans 8.28 is a great place to go for that. These are gospel themes that are Uh, that show up throughout, and they're summarized here in these quick three verses. And so we we can't take one of these without the other two, right? But I want to just take one, because I'm only allowed to preach one series, and so we're talking about joy, all right? (laughs) If I was a better preacher, I would have taken rejoice always and preached a whole sermon off of that, but I'm not. Some of you guys are like, man, it'd be done by now, right? Rejoice always. This is the shortest 
verse in the Greek New Testament? There's a Bible Bowl question for you. If you don't agree with me, come see me after. I'm right. <laughs> Rejoice. To be in a state of happiness or well-being. It carries with it this uh, being glad. Being happy. Oftentimes we, we distinguish the relationship between joy and happiness. I, I don't know if that's what's happening here. Rejoicing means like being happy. Carrying yourself with joy. I, I, I talk about this in student ministry. It's almost like a holy swagger, right? Rejoice. The grammar in this word breaks it down sort of like this. It's an active word, right? It's something that we are doing. We already talked about that a lot. It's present. It's right now. It's continuous. It's imperative. It's a command. And it's given in the plural here, giving us a hint to the fact that this ought to be a corporate action, that we need to be doing this together. And so be doing this. Do it together. The added continual call then on top of that is always. Rejoice now. But, but don't let it be on Sunday morning for a little bit. Like, do it always let go of that stress. Like, crack a smile. Laugh. Wipe away tears. Embrace a friend. Put down your phone. Notice the trees. Have you looked at trees? They're crazy, right? Like, Look at leaves. Trees have leaves. There's veins going in and out of this, providing like nutrients to this leaf. It's green. It's beautiful. Watch a bird glide through the air. Admire a sunset or a sunrise for you weirdos that wake up early. <laughs> Let go of a grudge. Forgive a relative. Watch a kid make a mess and try not to think about cleaning it up. Share a meal with somebody. Kiss your spouse. Dance. Scream if you have to. Shout! Just breathe. This is joy. Do it now. And don't let the weight of the mess that sin made of this broken life and this broken world make you stop doing it. This is the command. This is the imperative. In light of who Jesus is and what He's done, rejoice. Always. And with this rejoicing, take with it too. Praying without ceasing. Pastor Broadstreet yesterday, or, uh, last week did an incredible job of unpacking of how that looked as just an attitude or a posture. If you didn't get to hear that sermon, I'm telling you right now, you need to go on YouTube and watch that sermon on how to pray without ceasing. Take with that, not just praying, but also giving thanks in all circumstances. Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purposes. It's insanely difficult when we get there, but it's a glorious command to rejoice always. Question number two. In what sense is this 
the will of God. And without getting too far into the weeds of theological nerdery, I think we can uh, make sense of the will of God in two ways. The first is a general sense. In a general sense, like God has a will that He intends and He purposes to happen. It's how He shapes and moves in history. We get this out of verses like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Right? Like, all things are working together according to how God wills and intends for them to happen. Also, verses like Romans 9.19, where Paul asks a question, for who can resist His will? Answer, no one. Right? If God intends for it to happen, it's going to happen. That would be like kind of the general sense of God's will. Maybe another way we can understand God's will is a more specific sense, like walking in step with how God has called us to live. This happens for our good and for His glory. It's how He desires and designs people to live in a Garden of Eden type communion with Him. Right? He, he wills that. He created us for that. And it's calling us to step into that. The distinction between that general type of will and a specific type of will, maybe if this is helpful, it's not a perfect illustration, right? But like if you have like a programmer that, that uh, writes out a whole code for how a chess game is going to play out, right? Like that's how it's going to happen. Uh, versus if you have a coach who comes up with a game plan, right? Says this is the best course of action. It's where we're going, right? That's what we're doing. And maybe the team doesn't execute that game plan or something else. Maybe this is a better example. It's the difference between like a piece of music that shows where this, uh, this is going to go. Like an, an orchestra can play it and you can have the music in front of you and go, yeah, like that, that's where it was headed. That's what's on the paper. It's what it's going to sound like. Whereas the, the specific sense of God's will would be sort of right like a, a conductor or somebody up there uh, directing the orchestra to follow the right tempo that's on the page, right? To, to, to change dynamics, to get louder or to, to get softer. Or to hit the emphatic notes. Percussion section, boom, go. Right? It shows you how that piece ought to be played. These three commands, I think, are given as, uh, in a sense, when he says uh, the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, I think we ought to see them as specific. We should see them as a command to make something beautiful together like the orchestra does. Like, like, the musicians don't have to hit those notes. They don't have to get the dynamics right. But when they do, it create, it's something beautiful that was already mapped out on the sheet of music. It, it, it's a, a beautiful picture of how God intends for us to live. And so I think we should see these three commands as the specific will of God to carry on an attitude, ongoing Continuous attitude of rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving. That drives us to, to enjoy not just life in general, but to enjoy God Himself most. How powerful. Like, God intends for Christians to be happy. Always. Right? 
know this. When we, when we respond to, in obedience to his specific will and how he has designed and created us to be, we see that God in his general will and his unstoppable sovereign plan did not send his only son to die for you that you would live a miserable life. No, but that you would live a rejoicing life. And life eternal because of the resurrection. Always. He calls us out of guilt, out of anxiety, out of shame, out of depression. Those things are all real. Very real. He calls us out of those things because His plan is our greatest delight to be found in Him. His plan is that our greatest delight would be found in Him. And this leads to our third question. Because I just said some hard things. How on earth is this even possible? The simplest answer I can give is it's not. Not in our own strength. Not apart from Christ. Not, not, not unless you have an eternal perspective of being a blood-bought, spirit-filled follower of a sinless, resurrected Savior Jesus. It's, it's not. It's not. Uh, Romans 12. This is an incredibly powerful uh, verse on here. If you want to, Romans 12, you can go there with me. There's a big shift in the letter of Romans. Chapter 12, verse 2. One of the foremost passages on God's will and how we could discern and know what it's about. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. How we know the will of God is by being transformed. Notice that's passive, right? Like God's the one that's doing the transforming. But you're never going to be able to step into this apart from a relationship with Christ and an eternal perspective that gives you this view. You'll never step into this type of joy or an opportunity to rejoice always until you see sin paid for at the cross and death defeated at the resurrection. It's not going to happen. And so here's the question for some that might be in this room, right? Like, what is it at this point that's stopping you from stepping into that? Like, you need to ask yourself, like, where are the points at which I'm trying to get to this point of rejoicing always or seeking some sort of lasting joy and I, I keep going to this drug or I, I keep uh, slipping into this laziness and, and it's not working. It doesn't last. Rejoice always seems like a, a, an impossible command. And the question is, like, I believe God is saying to you right now, like, see Jesus for who He is. 
See the cross for what it's accomplished. See the resurrection for the hope of eternal life. And don't let any of those other excuses in this moment on this Sunday stop you from jumping into eternal joy. There has been testimony after testimony after testimony in this church of how many of you, and I'm looking at you in the face right now, have walked through the most miserable circumstances, the most unthinkable challenges, and gave thanks to God in those circumstances and depended solely on prayer. When you've done everything else and, and you've done those things and you smiled. You, you rejoiced in circumstances in which nobody else could. And so you, you ask, how is this even possible? Like, I'm sorry, like, I don't even know. I just know it's not possible apart from Christ. And so I, I, I just take that as a testimony to you guys' faithfulness and your ability to walk through these things in obedience to this command. And it's a challenge to press in and do that, not just in those circumstances, but always. And so for everybody in this room, though, I think here's the question that God wants us to think about this morning. What keeps us from rejoicing always? What keeps us from rejoicing always? Here's a few things that I've found as I've prepared this sermon. The first one is right in the text. I think one of the things that keeps us from rejoicing always is neglecting the other two. Neglecting prayer and thanksgiving. That's right there. These three are inextricably linked. We talked about that earlier, right? Thanks, giving thanks is looking to the past faithfulness of God, right? And prayer is trusting in the power of God's future promised grace to us. And so rejoicing in the present and the here and now continually, always, is dependent on thanksgiving and prayer. And so neglecting prayer and thanksgiving, I think, we see it right in the text, is one thing that keeps us from rejoicing. And so step into those things. When you're having a hard time rejoicing, bank on prayer. Look back at God's past thank, uh, faithfulness to you with thanks. The next two things that I think keep us from rejoicing are things that I think I've observed. Not necessarily just in this church. Yes, definitely in this church. But I think outside of this church and Christians in general, non-believers too. Things that keep us from rejoicing always. So the first was neglecting prayer and thanks. The second, shame of past sin. Whether sin that you have committed or habitually keep going back to or even being sinned against. Like that shame is toxic. 
It, it clouds our ability to rejoice in anything. And so the call on us is to like walk in the light in those things. Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover shame. Jesus forgave you. It's time to forgive yourself. I think when we can start stepping into that, it helps us get rid of the clouds in front of our judgment. See everything clear through the lens of the blood of Jesus. And move past the shame of past sin. Number three, fear of future circumstances. I think fear of future circumstances keep us from rejoicing always. This one is absolutely paralyzing. Right? Like, the anxiety that comes around, like, what might happen if I don't finish this report for work? Like, if I don't finish this report for work, we're not going to be able to buy that house if I don't devote uh, my, my uh, time to the, the dishes that are piled up in the sink, if I, if I don't step away from my family for a little bit and go do that, then our, my whole life is going to be a wreck, right? Like, how did we get from dishes to, like, destroying my life? Listen, maybe God is calling you to be really happy in a tiny house with dishes up to the roof. all these excuses that we come up with to not rejoice and we make ourselves miserable in the process out of fear of what might happen in the future. We need to make a little bit more money and work a little bit harder just so that this doesn't happen. Listen, the, the currency, the money of eternity is joy. We're, we're going to live forever. What are we worried about tomorrow for? Now hear me, husbands, y'all need to do the dishes for your wives. Okay, there's times when we display the sacrificial love of Jesus by doing those things. All right. The next four are, I think for me, four personal things that keep me from rejoicing always, and I hope they help you. So we had neglecting prayer and thanks, shame of past sin, fear of future circumstances. Number four, a lack of trust in God's sanctification and or discipline. Like I've found in the last couple months in me this impulse to think I deserve to be further in life than I am. Forgetting and not trusting that God has me where He has me for a season. It might even be for the rest of my life. But He has me here so I can grow. He has me here that I might look more like Christ. He has me in my current circumstances so that I, I can grow into more faithful follower of Jesus. And that's my sanctification. And I bring up the word discipline too because I, like, I, I think in Hebrews we're going to get to discipline. And I, I don't know that discipline even looks necessarily like spanking for doing wrong. I think discipline, when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about the, the professional athlete that wakes up first thing in the morning. He's the first one in the gym. He's the last one to leave. It's that discipline that goes in. So when it's game time, we're ready to go. 
And I'm forgetting that that's a lot of what God's doing in my life. I find that so often keeps me from rejoicing in the here and now. Number five, neglect of my own physical and mental health. Like I've, I find it very, very difficult to slow down. I, I find it really, really difficult to not be at things. And so if you've helped me in student ministry, right, like everybody, like Pastor Grant and FOMO go together, right? FOMO, fear, fear of missing out. Like it says, as much for a lot of people, uh, an identity for me as my pastoral ministry, right? Like I want to be around it. I want to be around people. I want to be involved in what's going on to the point that I struggle to step back. I, I struggle to take care of myself. So I think the call for some of us is not to neglect those things. Take a nap. <laughs> Go for a walk. Get the endorphins flowing. The physical side, the mental side too. Like, talk things out. Like, everybody in here needs to have somebody to be able to just talk things through. Amen. Whether it's a spouse or a counselor, a really close friend. When I'm neglecting my physical or mental health, it makes it really, really, really hard to rejoice. There's not a lot of hope that I'm going to be able to do it always. Number six, arrogance of making my own plans. We had uh, uh, two couples over this week, one couple that is also married and another couple that's engaged. Um, and the husband of the married couple uh, offered this incredible piece of advice. And he said, be prepared to be flexible as you're stepping into marriage. I think that was coming from an incredible place of just wisdom and submission to God's will. So like God has a will and we make all kinds of plans and I don't think it's necessarily wrong to make plans. But in God's will and His wisdom, they look really, really different than how we plan them out and how we map them out. And that's okay. It's not an excuse to not make plans. But he has a will. And one is completely in his hands. And one will is in ours, right? Like what we talked about there. Are we going to rejoice always? Are we going to trust God's will? And, and I think the, the beauty of the gospel and walking in light of this command to rejoice always is seeing those two things work together, right? Number seven. I think one of the things that keeps me from rejoicing always is forgetting my distinctiveness from the world. Forgetting that our joy in rejoicing makes us really weird and makes us stand out, but that might just be how somebody comes to know Jesus. Right? I, I try so hard to relate to people. I don't want to look goofy. I don't want people to think like some type of way about me. We commit to rejoice always. People will take notice. And a lot of times that might be because they think we're weird. Like, like go enjoy a sunset and don't take a picture. Like, that's weird in 2021. But just let your joy of, like, admiring the beauty of the picture God painted this evening be what stands out. Don't get sucked into the winds 
of our culture. It's weird to admire a sunset and not take a picture. Do it. I'm convinced more people come to faith by following hard after a weirdo than some of our arguing that we do. So here's where I think God has us. He's given us an imperative. Rejoice. Do it continuously. And do it always. Hear the next words of this prayer. Measure out to me, O Christ, my times and my degrees of joy, even at my work, at my business, at my duties. If I cry at night, give me joy in the morning. Let me rest in the thought of your love, your pardon for sin, my title to heaven, my future unspotted state. I'm an unworthy recipient of your grace. You guys pray with me. Father, we are unworthy recipients of your grace and yet you've poured it out. You have poured out your grace and you have satisfied your wrath through the blood of your son Jesus. And that's something that we take with a lot of weight here. But Lord, we take it with a heck of a lot of joy. God, I pray that Redeemer Church would be the type of church that might be full of some weirdos, but that people are just drawn to a distinct joy that doesn't end. It comes with a, 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 an eternal perspective. It's something that people long for and want for themselves. Lord, this is what you've accomplished in the body and blood of Jesus. So as we turn to communion, would you remind us of that today? In Jesus' name, amen.